Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, the editor of the New Books Network. The interview that you're about to hear was conducted by Jenny Atia, and it was first published on her wonderful show, ThoughtCast. I think you'll enjoy it, and I hope that you visit ThoughtCast today at www.thoughtcast.org. Welcome to ThoughtCast, also podcast on the web at www.thoughtcast.org. I'm Jenny Atia. Elizabeth Peabody was born in 1804 to an impoverished but educated family in Salem, Massachusetts. She was soon followed by Mary and Sophia, and the three Peabody sisters went on to become a brilliant trio who helped found the Transcendentalist movement in the early to mid-19th century. This radical philosophy promoted the value of intuitive thought and the innate goodness, indeed godliness, of the individual. It led to a cultural awakening that shook parochial Boston to its puritanical roots and ushered in an era of inquiry, self-discovery, and reform. Elizabeth called this America's second, more interior revolution, but as author Megan Marshall reveals in her new biography of the Peabody sisters, they were nonetheless ahead of their time and struggled, sometimes in vain, to be taken seriously, to have their words and ideas recognized. Megan has devoted almost 20 years to telling their story. We're here in her home in Newton, Massachusetts. Megan, welcome to ThoughtCast. Thanks, Jenny. Can you give me a thumbnail sketch of the three sisters, Elizabeth, Mary, and Sophia? Well, let's see. Elizabeth was the oldest and rather a domineering sort. She was also quite a precocious intellect, reading, for example, on her own the whole course that a Harvard Divinity School student might have been required to read by maybe the age of 13. She also sought out brilliant minds. So at the age of 13, for example, she had introduced herself to the Reverend William Ellery Channing, who was the most charismatic minister in all of Boston and the most liberal and progressive thinking man, perhaps, in town. She led the way, and then the sisters followed Mary and Sophia. Mary tended to kind of compete with Elizabeth, wanting to connect with the famous, but not necessarily wanting to contend with them, as Elizabeth was so eager to do. Her personality was different. She was more of a tyrant. She was a middle child, and she was a dreamy girl who loved novels and uh, saw herself fulfilling some kind of romantic destiny. And Sophia, the youngest, she seemed to be trailing, but was actually a very powerful personality herself. And the most ambitious, openly ambitious of the three as a child, She wished she could be a minister. Of course, women couldn't be ministers in those days. She uh, was also a talented artist and yet had a lot of ambivalence about making her way into a world that was dominated by men. So she suffered from migraines early on, and these became rather a complex of sort of physical and psychological symptoms that kept her out of the marketplace of ideas to a certain extent, but still powerful within the household and very attractive to men, as it turned out. 
She was also, if I may say, a bit of a spoiled brat. She would tell her sister Elizabeth to back off, writing her to expect nothing of me. Yes, well, Elizabeth was domineering, and I think that that was the only way that uh, Sophia could hold her own, was to demand that others back off or back off herself. Yes, she had the strength to do that, and that was a kind of strength that allowed her to enter into this field of art, which very few women were engaged in. Megan, you give equal weight to the three sisters in your book, but I think the heart of the book is Elizabeth. She was, as you said, the most intellectually precocious. I think she learned Hebrew as a child so she could read the Old Testament in the original language. Yes. Mm -hmm. And she was also the one who seemed to contribute most intellectually to the transcendentalist movement. Can you define transcendentalism and also say how she contributed to it? Yes, well, I think you gave a very good definition about transcendentalism as a way of valuing the inner life and the inner connection with nature and a, a sort of innate spirituality as if God was in ourselves. God is not a sort of patriarchal ruler to slap us around. God is something, godliness is something to discover in ourselves. Certain strains of the transcendentalists and those that most immediately come to mind today have to do with a kind of seeking solitude and a relationship with nature, a solitary relationship with nature. We think of Thoreau out in his cabin. But Elizabeth had a very different take on this, which was just as powerful and original, really, for the time. And this was what she tried to push through transcendentalism, a sense that innate in all of us is a capacity to care for others. Um, she talked about the socialism of true religion, that we need to take responsibility for others in the world. So if you really think about what the transcendentalist era involved as far as reform, there were, of course, wonderful writers and experiments in solitary living, but there were also experiments in communal living. The Brook Farm utopian community, for example, was begun by transcendentalists who followed Elizabeth Peabody's strain, the social principle, she called it. I think Sophia at some point compares her own interest in nature and the beauty of a leaf on a tree or a leaf of grass, if I may paraphrase yes. <laughs> Whitman. And she said that for Elizabeth, her interest was in people. Yes, yes. People are Elizabeth's uh, flowers and fruit. <laughs> I think the reason maybe you were drawn to Elizabeth and other people are is that she fits a kind of dramatic role in the book that we've all grown up loving in novels about women. You know, the, the one who really tried to do something on her own. She was driven by books, driven by the life of the mind, and she wanted to find something to do with that. She then opened a bookstore in uh, 1840 that became a gathering place for the transcendentalists. It was a foreign language bookstore, so she was importing books from France and Germany and England that were really the foundational work that inspired the transcendentalists. And she allowed them to gather there, encouraged them to gather there, and that's where the Brook Farm community was planned. That's where Margaret Fuller held conversations. So there is a sense in which the book is oriented towards that culmination of uh, her ideals and those of these young intellectuals that were in her circle. Megan, in your book, you imply pretty strongly that Elizabeth's early ideas and writings, although some of them weren't published, were really often precursors to those of Emerson or Bronson Alcott, the educator, in your book, for example, you write that Elizabeth, referring to a work of hers in which she paraphrased the Gospel of St. John, quote, 
recognized a similarity in the ideas of that early paper, one she had also shown Waldo Emerson, and the very ideas that now were creating such a stir in Emerson's Divinity School address. Quote, it was my creed before I knew it was his, she writes a friend. This heresy does not belong to his mind alone. Yes, it's pretty fascinating the way Elizabeth will put forward these ideas. She's sharing these ideas, and she was thrilled to share them with Emerson in an early, uh, probably 10 years, almost 10 years before he gave the Divinity School Address. And she was happy to share them. And then when it turns out he's getting all this attention for putting them out there, you can see in that kind of statement a little bit of regret that she's not getting credit for them. But um, she's such a a collaborator. She's not going to go out there too far and make any claims, not make any claims to Emerson particularly either. But I think in in that case, again, it, it was this whole notion that the divine is in ourselves. And she was willing to say that early on. Emerson came to it a little bit later. You know, you just wonder, had she been a man? This was a thought that she didn't allow herself often, if at all. But, you know, had she been a man, where would she be? Is it not possible that part of Elizabeth's problem was that she didn't write very well? You have mentioned in the book that her writing is labored, overly referential, and at times impenetrably abstract. And at some point, Horace Mann, the educator, tells her to, quote, eliminate anything of the absolute and the infinite, and to keep to the Saxon language mainly, and to Saxon sense wholly. Yes, well... As uh, we've discussed, she was a big reader, and she absorbed uh, so much. Sometimes you think she, here she was reading German philosophy, and, and she writes English almost as if she were Germanic, you know. But it's also true that her most original thoughts, the, the passages in which she described, for example, the social principle in those early essays, were very direct and and very readable, I found. It's just that she often wanted to cushion her arguments. She didn't feel she could really put herself out there as a thinker in the way uh, that Emerson did. Now, of course, Emerson's probably a, a more lucid writer, but he comes in for a lot of grief as well. For, yeah, he wasn't for the most... For his abstractions. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think maybe Thoreau does a little better on the, on the readability front. Megan Marshall is the author of the new biography titled The Peabody Sisters, Three Women Who Ignited American Romanticism. And this is ThoughtCast, also podcast on the web at www.thoughtcast.org. I'm Jenny Atia. Now, Sophia is a literary transcendentalist, so her style was a bit more uh, palatable. Um, yes, although she also, she, she was very reluctant to publish so what we have of her writing, uh, aside from many, many letters, are journals that she kept. They're just wonderful passages about, you know, the, uh, the transcendent moonlight and um, seeing the universe in a blade of grass. These are things that she was moved to say, partly through her reading of the European romantics, but also because of her own direct response to nature. And Mary, her contribution was as a reformer. Uh, yes, Mary, um, in some ways, was radicalized by the experience of traveling to Cuba as the governess on a coffee plantation. She accepted the job so that Sophia could 
spend some time in a warm climate and attempt to recuperate her health. So Mary took the job as governess to, to pay their expenses to get there and their, and their living expenses while they were there. Sophia was taking horseback rides in the morning and resting on her couch, and Mary was teaching the two young sons of the French doctor whose coffee plantation they lived on. But she was also very much quickly identified with the slaves on the plantation and could not, really could not bear witnessing what was going on there. She would, in her time off, work with the slaves who kept a garden kept the vegetable garden for the, for the plantation. She did anything that she could to involve herself in their plight. Later in her life, Mary wrote an anti-slavery novel, which only was published posthumously. She's also the one that you identify with most, you've said. She was a middle child like you. Yes, that's right. And I think this rather dreamy, creative side of her was something that evolved from the middle position. She needed an imaginary life to retreat into, and that was certainly something that I did as a child. I was a big reader, and, and uh, I, I keep wishing, you know, why didn't she write this novel then? It would have been years before Uncle Tom's Cabin that Mary would have written her novel, Juanita, that was exposed the evils of slavery. But Mary was very self-sacrificing. Yes. Mary was also a teacher alongside Elizabeth and at times on her own. And she went on to marry Horace Mann, the educator who later founded Antioch College. To what degree was Mary overshadowed by her husband? Uh, apparently, she really lived for him in a way long before even they got married. That's right. She, uh, you have to take yourself back to another time, you know, where women had only a certain limited number of options to exert what might have been ambition or their own dreams of being effective. And one way, you know, we have to be honest about this, one way was to marry a man and support a man who could do those things. Um, in a way, she was in the shadow, but he also enabled her to um, have a voice through him. She married the man she loved, and Sophia did too. She ended up marrying Nathaniel Hawthorne, the uh, writer, and her fantasy had always been to have this, as you write, I believe, uh, this marriage of creative partners, two artists working side by side. But the shocking thing in your book on the very last page is that just before Sophia gave birth to her first child, she stopped painting altogether and never did it again. That's right. It, it, it certainly is sad, I think. But, you know, we can understand that again today. How, how was she to go, go forward as an artist with a child and then more than one child? I mean, the few women painters that she knew of didn't marry, didn't have children, and it's still a problem today. So... Um, think about that. It was 1840. But um, it is sad about Sophia. It's sad that she could not really fulfill this dream of being, a, you know, an artist with her husband, the writer. But that fantasy didn't involve children either. I don't think she knew, you know, how many of us do know what it's going to take until it comes upon us. A slightly dated biographer, Louise Tharp, who wrote her book on the Peabody sisters in 1950, puts a pretty pleasant gloss on this. She writes that the reason Sophia never painted again was because, quote, Sophia was too happy. 
she had too complete a sense of fulfillment in motherhood. She would always be an artist in the way she used her eyes, and the beauty of her children would give her constant delight. Mentally, she painted Yuna's red-gold hair, and in imagination, she modeled the baby's hand a dozen times a day. But the Sophia, who once prayed to be possessed by the power to create, now held in her arms all of creation in the form of her child. She did not even think to ask Louisa Hawthorne if the Manning Parlor had a north light. So apparently, Sophia didn't want to paint anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, that does sound like the 1950s, doesn't it? <laughs> Um, I think that Sophia, certainly she loved Hawthorne, she loved being married, and the, and the children filled her life as they do fill your life when they're young. But as they got older, some of her inclination towards illness returned, just as I think Hawthorne's own moodiness came over him. You know, the things that had made both of them seem perhaps as if they would never marry began to draw them, I think, apart a bit. It's hard to say whether, uh, it's certainly not true that Sophia's only happiness or, or was perfectly happy because of having had the children. I think then, of course, when children take the place of your works of art, that puts a big burden on the children. And none of the three Hawthorne children uh, had easy lives. And I think because of the burden that both their parents placed on them to validate the meaning and, and the importance of that union. It also really does raise questions of how can one have a life of the mind while married? Emerson himself seemed to be quite concerned about that, uh, bitter about it, when domestic life would intrude upon his thought. Do you get the impression that from this book uh, it's better to live alone if you're a writer? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, and also if you think about Emerson complaining about the intrusions on his life, you have to really think also about his wife, who was quite an intellect. She gave up all her, any pursuit of the life of the mind, although she actually, she did attend Margaret Fuller's conversations, but she, she didn't have a study. She wasn't writing. He was writing and his time was sacred. But um, Elizabeth Peabody struggled with this question too. She um, believed very much in the importance of social relations, but she also felt that she needed a certain amount of solitude in order to write, and that was a constant conflict for her. Um, Hawthorne, too, was very reluctant to marry because he thought it would be, it, it might cut into his creative powers, and certainly as far as the demands on him to earn a living to support a family, that was a very risky step to take, to marry. But, yes, the question of marriage and the creative life, it's something that's going to plague anyone with a creative yen, um, probably for generations to come. You're listening to ThoughtCast, also podcast on the web at www.thoughtcast.org. I'm Jenny Atia. Megan Marshall is the author of a new biography called The Peabody Sisters. It's subtitled, Three Women Who Ignited American Romanticism. Megan, much of your book is devoted to transcendentalism and how the Peabody Sisters contributed to it. 
Do you see transcendentalism as a precursor or a subset of American Romanticism? Well, the transcendentalists were inspired by the Romantic writers in Europe, and it was a kind of a transplantation of or an absorption of these Romantic ideas from Kant and Coleridge and Wordsworth. So transcendentalism was an American phenomenon, and that is what romanticism really was in, in the United States. It was this group of New England writers and thinkers who were applying these European ideals to their own lives and to the, to the world they found around them. Well, it was all very romantic for Mary and Sophia. They got to marry the men they truly loved, but Elizabeth never got married. That's right, yes. Elizabeth apparently just wasn't sexually attractive to men, with a few exceptions. She was unkempt. She didn't give enough care to her appearance, as the men are always telling her in the book. But there must have been more to it than that. Yeah, well, you know, as I read sort of constantly about her, you know, not combing her hair and not observing the niceties, I began to think that perhaps this was deliberate on her part. I think Elizabeth was always trying to say, accept me as a person with a mind. But um, I think that the men, as far as their attraction to her, I think she was very much unconventional and um, insisting on an intellectual relationship, which could be, I think, fatiguing to them also. She was the sort who would stay up to all hours of the night debating a point and maybe they'd had enough of that after a certain point, or maybe that was something they were more accustomed to in men. I think that's what Bronson Alcott said in one of his more unflattering descriptions of Elizabeth when she began to be a little critical of his educational theories. He then turned around and said, well, she really was a little too mannish for him, but what did that mean? That meant that she held opinions, she stuck to them, she argued for them. Um, in those days, maybe that was mannish. You write that... He really didn't care for it when she disagreed with him, <laughs> although she was the one who helped found his school. That's right, yes. The Temple School um, called that because it was in a brand new building. The Masonic Temple in Boston um, was probably the first free school in America. They, they, Elizabeth already had many very advanced ideas that were in tune with Bronson Alcott's. She, for example, taught through discussion, and she didn't use textbooks. She had her students bring in their favorite poem or their favorite story and read out loud from that in order to analyze the grammar of a sentence or the spelling of words. So that way they had a very strong connection with whatever it was they were learning. Um, Alcott went farther, or, or his particular innovation involved journals. He had the students keep journals that were journals actually of their interior life, a very transcendentalist thing to, for them to be doing. And he engaged them in um, profound philosophical discussions. This is what Elizabeth was trying to facilitate, and then she broadcast by recording these dialogues and publishing them in a book called Record of a School, which came out in 1835. It was really the first book-length publication of transcendentalist ideas in the United States. And it was relatively successful until, unfortunately, about half the print run burned in a warehouse fire. As did the only painting we have of Elizabeth. It's very sad, <laughs> yes. Megan, there is a pair of love triangles in the book. It was Elizabeth who first got to know Nathaniel Hawthorne and Horace Mann, and then after this great intense intellectual relationship, they both dump her and marry her sisters. What was motivating them? 
Well, um, of course, Elizabeth was the one who drew these two men into the household. She was attracted to their minds, and I think she was attracted to them in other ways, too. But what she really wanted was to spar with anyone with a fine mind, male or female. And I think these men enjoyed that with, uh, as well at first, but it began to seem to them not really feminine. And although there were intense relationships, even romances perhaps, it was her more conventionally feminine sisters that these men ultimately fell in love with. Uh, I think perhaps because the other sisters were a little bit more willing to offer the kind of support and not the contention that Elizabeth seemed to thrive on so much. I suppose you can't blame them. Wouldn't we all like a wife? <laughs> yes. Um, Megan, your book has been described as a feminist biography, and a New York Times critic wrote that you're a partisan to the cause. Would you agree? Well, um, certainly I consider anything that pushes the cause of women forward to be feminism. <laughs> and giving women the dignity that they deserve, their aspirations, honoring their aspirations, that's to me is feminism and I'm a little sorry that the word seems to you know not to evoke positive connotations to every everyone because it's to me a great positive yes I'm you know what I like to think of there's a term sympathetic identification that's what I have tried to do with the sisters I don't want to be their booster but I do want to present them as they saw themselves of course, balanced by the perceptions of others. But the, I think for the Peabody sisters in particular, they did not publish a lot. They exist in their, today in their journals and their letters so powerfully. Um, that needed to be brought out. That was the story that I wanted to tell, the story of their inner lives, rather than one of you know, the busybody Elizabeth, the invalid Sophia, the, you know, the uh, dutiful wife Mary. And I mean, that's, those are the concepts that have been passed down. Yes, yeah, that's what you could sort of see from the outside. But I read through so many thousands of pages of letters that showed them to be so much more f real people than that. And that was very much what I wanted to bring out in the, in the book. So, of course, I sympathized with them in ways that others around them perhaps weren't even aware was possible to, uh, to know them in this way. So yeah, I guess, in a sense, I'm their advocate, but I think it was because they had been unfairly caricatured by writers in the past and even within, in their own time. Megan, your book ends really with their arrival. Uh, the Peabody sisters have become established. Elizabeth has her bookstore, which became, as you mentioned, the hub of the transcendentalist movement, and the other sisters are happily married, supporting brilliant men. What happened next to their ideas, to transcendentalism, to this cultural awakening? this newness, as it was called at the time? Well, you know, I think the reformers moved on into some very concrete efforts. The, the energy of transcendentalism fueled abolition and then women's rights. And uh, so you th certainly within Boston, the women's rights movement came out of a sense of the dignity of the individual. You know, maybe Emerson and Thoreau were saying you know, speaking of self-reliance, and they tended to think of men, but women could be self-reliant too. That was the argument that the New England feminists made in arguing for suffrage. Women had innate dignity in their souls, innate divinity within themselves, and so why not have all the rights and privileges of men 
And again, another point that Elizabeth Peabody made early on in her 1826 essays about the moral, intellectual, and spiritual equality of men and women, that was a very strong concept for her. So transcendentalism faded in a sense as these other more powerful movements came on the stage and and needed to be answered. The uh, slavery had to be addressed. The rights of women had to be addressed. And yet the ideas were still there behind it, fueling a kind of a newness through action. You know, I was thinking a little more also what you said about the sisters and the caricatures. If you think about it, three strong women from the same family must have been very threatening. And how could you diffuse that power? It was to caricature, to minimize, dismiss, and make humorous these Peabody's. And again, that was my goal, was to show the kind of power that they did have. That was, in fact, a big struggle with, in Elizabeth, a repeated theme. How could she use power? Human power was very uh, an important issue to her because I think she felt in herself a great energy and ambition, yet what were women able to do? And imagine three of them living together in the same place. Uh, it must have been... Tight. Yes. <laughs> Hard for them, threatening to those outside, and so easily dismissed. And you have now given them their due in your Thanks. book. Well, Megan, thank you very much. Megan Marshall is the author of the new biography titled The Peabody Sisters, Three Women Who Ignited American Romanticism. And this is ThoughtCast. The researcher for the program is David Bishop, and I'm Jenny Atia. Thanks for listening. Thank you.